Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. In this episode, I chat with Avichal Garg, co-founder of Electric Capital, a US-based early stage venture capital firm founded in 2018, focusing on crypto investments. Electric Capital have backed leading companies in the space, such as Anchorage, Bitwise, Celo, and CoinFlex, to name a few. Avichal himself is a longtime entrepreneur who has previously worked at Web2 companies such as Facebook and Google. In addition to his really insightful takes on the intersection between crypto and tech, we take some time during our conversation to dig deep into some lessons learned from Silicon Valley. He even shares his take on Mark Zuckerberg's vision of turning Facebook into a metaverse company. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Avishal, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the pod with me. I've known your name for a long time now, so this is truly a treat. Oh, thank you for having me. I love your energy. Oh my God, this is uh, <laughs> so positive. Hope to make it fun. <laughs> well, Avichal, with uh, Electric Capital, a lot of people know you as an investor in crypto, but your story and your history and relationship with crypto, I think, extends way far back into the, I want to say, early 2010s, if you will, and it kind of is influenced by your background in tech. Right? You've worked with a lot of what people would call Web2 type companies. So we'd love to hear the backstory there in terms of how you got into the world of tech and what some of your influences were. So my backstory is, is mostly as an entrepreneur. I, I started my career at Google. I worked on search ranking and ads ranking. My background's in computer science. And then um, you know, at, that, at sort of that moment in time, Google was the place to be. I was on the product team and, and learned a bunch. And it was just sort of a, it was a really special time to be at Google, actually. It was, um, you know, like the growth rate of the company was phenomenal and it just, just IPO'd. And so it was, it was an amazing time to be there. And so I decided to leave <laughs> despite it being an amazing place and uh, went and started a, an education company and sold that and then started a mobile infrastructure company with my good friend Curtis. And Curtis and I had gone to undergrad and grad school together. And he'd sold his previous company right about the same time I sold my first company. And so we sort of both happened to be freed up and we both wanted to work together for a long time. So we just started exploring ideas together. We sort of came up with this um, 
sort of like a TiVo for your phone. You could give us a URL and we could crawl whatever was on the other side of it and make a copy of it for you. And, um, and all that tech, we basically had to run in non-AWS data centers. So we couldn't, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, we didn't want to run it on Amazon's cloud cost and, and some other reasons. And so we were building all this infrastructure and controlling, you know, we could spin up machines on demand and control GPUs all over the place and do a lot of video encoding. So we were, we were sort of built all this infrastructure. And that was all the IP that Facebook bought ultimately in um, 2012, we sold the company. While we were doing that, kind of two, two things happened. So one, Curtis came across the Bitcoin white paper and um, he comes from a distributed system background. So he had architected this amazing giant distributed system that we were running across all these different data centers. So he came across that and he'd worked on things like protein folding at home in grad school. And so he saw this and said, oh, wow, this solves one of the bigger problems that we had for our projects, which was how do you get people to give you computational power? Because in things like protein folding at home, it's all donation based. And so he said, oh, wow, maybe this is a way for people to pay you for it, to pay for computational power and, and the protocol can just pay out. And that might solve the computational problem that we had. And then he introduced me to it. And, and so that was our lens, actually, on Bitcoin originally. We didn't, we didn't really understand the monetary implications or the store value lens on it. We were you know, very much self-trained on that stuff. So we saw it just as a different way to build software, as a, as a distributed systems platform. The, the second thing that happened was in these data centers that we were in, we ran into some Bitcoin miners because this is pre-ASIC era, 2010. So people were sort of rigging things up on CPUs and GPUs. And so we said, oh, you know, that's funny. We, we have a bunch of excess compute power. Maybe we should do some mining. And so we started dabbling with some mining. And our core business wasn't working. And so we actually had two options. We could either pivot the company. And one of the options to pivot to was basically becoming a Bitcoin mining company. Um, and the other was to sell the company to Facebook. Um, and obviously, we, we chose to sell. <laughs> We're not by any means visionary enough to see what would happen over the next decade with Bitcoin. But that was sort of our first introduction to Bitcoin. And and we tracked the space for a long time as hobbyists and while we were at Facebook for about five years. And then uh, left in 2016 and had sort of experienced Ethereum earlier in 2016. And, and for us, that was the big moment where we said, oh, now it might actually be possible to do all the things that we thought would happen with Bitcoin. And just as a sort of computational platform, maybe maybe it's actually possible now. And so we just started spending all of our time in the space after we left Facebook in 2016, just for fun. You know, it wasn't, there was no like intention. We thought maybe we'd start another company built, you know, built on top of Ethereum or in crypto somehow. But we were just sort of playing around and we were in chat rooms and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff that, you know, when you're a little kid, they tell you not to do on the internet, like talk to strangers and send money to strange people and so on. But we were having a lot of fun with it. And um, 2017 rolled around and, and the price of Bitcoin, you know, and Ethereum started to go through the roof. And so a bunch of VCs here in Silicon Valley started reaching out to us and saying, hey, can you teach us like what's Ethereum? What's an ICO? I remember you guys telling me about Bitcoin years ago. Is it real this time? Should I buy some Bitcoin? Because Curtis and I had also become uh, pretty active angel investors outside of crypto um, and in crypto. We're in, in early in things like um, Bitwise and Dapper Labs and Anchorage and DYDX, like a bunch of companies of that sort of 16, 17 era, but also a lot of other companies um, over the years, things like Notion, Figma, Airtable, fintech companies like Nova, New Front Insurance, a lot of companies that have gone on to do quite well. So a bunch of the VCs knew us. And so um, they started reaching out and just, we started teaching people about crypto. Very quickly, kind of by the end of 2017, everybody in, in traditional Silicon Valley, other than Andreessen, basically said, you know what, we're not really set up to do this. Like our firms are not set up to do this. And so a few of the general partners at some of the VC firms approached us and said, hey, can we just give you guys money? Can you do what you're doing with your personal capital, but do it with, with our money too? Because we don't really understand this crypto stuff. Like we don't know how tokens work. We don't know how to acquire this stuff or custody it. Or right? this is just a different world than the one that we're used to. And so we formalized everything that we were doing personally into 
Electric Capital. So that was kind of how Electric happened in um, in 2018, and since then we've gone on to to scale it up quite a bit. You know, depending on the day, where it's plus or minus 40, percent but um, <laughs> but it, but it, but at this point we have something like you know a, a, bil- a billion dollars under management or something. So it's it's scaled up quite a bit in the last two two and a half years. Yeah, incredible. I, I love that you can say that by the way and just just own it. You know, <laughs> depending on how the market is. Well, that's an incredible backstory. I mean, you talked about that moment where it clicked for you in terms of figuring out what the Ethereum ecosystem was and potentially, you know, through your investments, understanding what could be built on top of Ethereum in terms of the decentralized applications that a lot of us use now, right? And you talk about how crypto feels today as raw as the internet was perhaps when you first dabbled with the internet and then eventually got into companies like Facebook and Google. Do you still feel that way today? Is, is there like a, a, a change in how you feel the crypt, crypto connects or relates to the internet that we know of today? It's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I mean, I think I still have the same sense of wonderment and optimism that that I had in early internet, but now in crypto, just just like you see the, the level of talent coming in, you know, you see the optimism that people have. And there's the sense, I think, that we can actually create something better here, whether that's, you know, something better than the banks and, and the existing financial system that when you look at the numbers, it's like, who are they really, how do they really make money off of things like overdraft fees? And they're really making it off of poor people, you know, like rich people are getting all the fees waived, right? Or if you're talking about big tech, and, you know, I think too often, especially from the regulatory side, crypto gets lumped in with big tech because it is software, but it's actually very meaningfully different, right? Uh, a lot of, I think, the ethos of what makes crypto work today is, is in a lot of ways, I think, anti-big tech and anti-centralization. And so, you know, regardless of the application you're talking about, I think there's this underlying optimism right now in crypto that we might actually be able to go achieve a lot of what I think the original internet envisioned. And, and sort of we got sidetracked in, in sort of interesting ways um, to just the centralization of power that happened on the internet. Maybe this time around, we could have a second shot at it and, and do better this time. But it's still really early days. And so I hope that that's what happens over the next 10 years. And I'm optimistic that it will. Um, I think that the fact that we sort of have the existence proof of the internet and, and all the ways that it can go sideways, if, if you let all that power concentrate and go unchecked, I think will help us because that gives us a little bit of a guide about you know, the, the pitfalls to avoid. But I think it's you know remains to be seen what happens over the next five to ten years and kind of how how all this stuff plays out. But I'm I'm very optimistic that we're going to reimagine things like financial services and eventually social networks and media companies and all of this stuff will actually get reimagined in a, in a much more community centric way where the people who use these networks and these, these protocols and these products actually get to share in the upside of it and actually where structurally that the power can't concentrate quite in the way that it did on the internet. So apart from financial services, which is a a really, really big goal or just, you know, feel to to tackle, what other needs do you think are not met in our current society, you know, that crypto could really come in and help change at a rapid pace? Yeah, it's it's a good question. There's, There's probably a lot more than the ones I think about, but, you know, three that come to mind for me. One is just lowering the barrier to creating software and just writing code and putting it out there. And I think one of the things that's just so wonderful and optimistic about crypto is how young it skews, right? You have like 13 year olds writing code and publishing smart contracts and just putting it out there. And in a lot of ways, I think the barrier to, to just writing code, uh, especially as, as sort of the, 
the blockchain development ecosystem gets much better and much more robust. You know, you can write in TypeScript or or another pro- programming language like on on something like Near, and it compiles down to something EVM compatible. You know, I think as the tooling gets really that much better, the barrier to entry to just writing code and pushing a button and shipping it, I think, means that young people get involved and, and developers can just engage with this stuff. You know, like the number of services you have to run or packages you have to unblock or, you know, just like the complexity of architecture in terms of like a modern web app has just gotten so crazy that I think actually lowering the barrier to just writing some simple code and seeing it manifest, I think is going to be awesome from a developer perspective. You know, I think the second is... Um, I think thinking about privacy, and I think, you know, crypto, kind of the roots of it, obviously, are cryptography. And I think one of the one of the big things that has happened over the last five years in particular, maybe the last five to seven years, is now that we have a profit motive for cryptography, we've seen just rapid advance, advancement in things like zero-knowledge proofs. And so, you know, things that used to be a trade-off, like can you have privacy or can you have scalability or can you have privacy or can you have auditability? Those things are no longer trade-offs, and so I'm I'm really optimistic about our ability to have, you know, really excellent products and services that also maintain our our privacy uh, and privacy of our data. You know, I, I'm I'm hopeful that actually these baseline privacy primitives just get baked in everywhere. And then the third is just I mean I think if you, if you take this basic idea of um, a value exchange that crypto enables, uh, the the most obvious application is anything that we, we call financial services, but I think it actually unlocks a a new business model which is it's, it's a really about peer-to-peer payments. And actually, if you think about it, a lot of the internet, a lot of the biggest businesses on the internet actually are about peer-to-peer payments. They just happen to be disintermediate or they happen to be intermediated through some sort of platform because that, has, that had to be the way that the business model worked on the internet. And so I think when you think about, for example, a lot of marketplaces, eBay or Etsy, you had to have a, a meeting place, but then you also had to wait, have a way for those people to pay each other on either side of the marketplace. When you think about Uber or Instacart, when you think about the entire creator economy, whether it's YouTube or Patreon or whatever, like you know, a, a large part of what's happening is you create a, a meeting place for the marketplace of content creators and consumers. And then the way that you intermediate that because you have uh, these intermediaries is through advertising. But really now what you can do is have creators that connect directly with their supporters and their fans. And so to me, that's an entirely new business model. And anytime you see a new business model emerge in technology, like, you know, people really embrace that and run with it. And so I think, you know, the the business model itself of, of people being able to pay each other is going to be pretty big because there are a lot of things, I think, that are ads-based services on the internet that don't need to be. And actually, people now are increasingly willing to pay each other directly via subscription service or, or you know, micropayments or whatever. And so actually, I think a lot of what we consider marketplaces, both sort of marketplaces for goods, but also marketplaces for information, like things like YouTube, you can actually start to reimagine because the, the underlying business model, you, you can have a different business model now that, that might actually support a new type of application. So anyway, those are three areas that I think I'm, I'm particularly excited about is just like dramatically lowering the friction for developers to just start writing code and shipping it. The implications of privacy preserving technologies and making privacy no longer a trade-off that we have to think about. Everybody just gets privacy, which I think is a, is a fundamental good. And then I think the, the idea of a new business model and that allowing us to reimagine a lot of the core internet services, because now you can actually have peer-to-peer payments, I think is going to be a huge unlock. Yeah, I want to put a pin on that last comment that you mentioned, because I think it gets to your thoughts about NFTs, right? Being able to really invest in people without necessarily needing to rely on an intermediary to, to you know, 
invest in a piece of art, right? All that I will get to in just a bit, but I want to touch on um, some of those big businesses that you mentioned, right? Like Facebook. And and you've said before that, you know, a lot of the big businesses on the internet are the ones that were counterintuitive or the opposite or doing things in a way that was opposite to how we should be navigating on the internet, right? And just to give our audience some examples for Facebook, you said, you know, this might be word for word here, but, you know, don't talk to strangers and tell them anything about you, you know, things that document your life. But that's what we're doing on platforms like Facebook and Instagram today. You know, Uber, don't get into strangers' cars, but that's exactly what we're comfortable doing today. Bumble and, and Tinder, right? Don't meet strangers, but that is one of the fastest way for a lot of the, I guess, younger generation to to go out and meet people. And same things with, with other things like the GPS and and stuff. So do you see crypto doing the same in that, you know, sometimes we get ingrained when we're young that says, you know, don't take out a loan to invest in something, you know, kind of unpredictable like crypto or don't invest more than you can afford to lose. And for a lot of the the folks who we now know as crypto millionaires, billionaires even, they, they kind of needed to take that chance, take that risk early on to say, hey, look, like I, I want to bet on the future of this industry, whether it be, you know, me buying into it philosophically, socially, technically, right? And some of these entrepreneurs are are doing exactly the things that we were told uh, from per- perhaps a financial education course not to do, you know, not to take on more more risk than we can lose. So how do you think about entrepreneurs who have done that in crypto today? Lots of good thoughts there. So, well, for the first background, like this is obviously not financial advice um, and, you know, nobody should listen to me on anything financial. <laughs> If you're listening to this, this is absolutely not financial advice. Now, that being said, I think I'm I'm actually not a huge fan of people, for example, taking out leverage and risking more than they can afford to, to lose. But I, I think your point is well taken in the sense that um, I think there are new financial primitives here that start to bump up against social norms. And some of these norms that we have may not be utilitarian, right? They may just be stigma. And that's where I think really big and interesting breakthroughs can happen is when you have some social norm that actually when you probe at it, you're like, well, why is that the case? Is it actually rooted in some utility or is it just like we all happen to believe that? And that's where I think you can get really interesting breakthroughs. So for example, you know, I think a, a very common thought with the internet was, well, everything you've done is going to, is online. And so you have to be really, really careful about now. Increasingly, I think there's this sense of like, well, you have to be really careful about what you say and where you say it and how you say it. And, you know, like, can something that you said when you're 21, because it gets recorded in Instagram or, you know, on Twitter, like, does, does that come back to haunt you 20 years later? And you're like, oh, man, I can't believe that's what I said when I was 21. And so that's kind of like in the background for people, right? And so there's this sort of in, ingrained assumption that like your, your identity really matters, right? It's like who you are, like your reputation really, really matters. But maybe you can turn that on its head, right? Maybe actually your identity doesn't matter at all. And actually what's going to happen is people are going to have multiple identities. And so you're already starting to see this in crypto in really fascinating ways where people have pseudonyms. And so there's just entire communities of anons, right? There's just some handle and you can contribute code through that handle. Uh, you have a Twitter handle and have hundreds of thousands of followers and nobody knows who you are. You can contribute to a DAO and you can build up an entirely different identity that actually has nothing to do with your real identity. And so actually your, your sort of the traditional conventional wisdom of like your name and your identity and your reputation really, really matter actually turns out to not be true. Right. Actually, you can throw your reputation out the window like you have a terrible reputation and reboot it or you could have a stellar reputation and 
and not have to worry about losing it. Like you can actually reboot an entire reputation, which is sort of, you know, kind of a weird thing, right? So it's like, you're going to really, like, you're going to hire people that are anons. You're going to work with people that you've never met before. Like it breaks a lot of social stigmas about how work should happen or like how you work. You know, like you're going to get paid by this DAO that is just like prints money and gives you tokens. Like, what is that? So there are like a lot of norms there that get broken that I think in a traditional context, you know, people think about go to a good school, get a good job, you know, like be a good upstanding citizen and like your real real name really matters. Don't get canceled, all of those things. And actually, you can just turn all those things on your head, right? Like you don't have to use your real name anywhere. You don't have to go to college. You can just write code for a DAO and make good money. And, you know, it's, it actually throws a lot of social convention on its head. But it's awkward. Like if you if you try to explain to your parents, what do you do? It's weird, right? It's like, oh, I just have a username and other people with usernames pay me on the internet, right? It just sounds kind of sketch. And so, you know, it, it, I think there are going to be things like that that are sort of breakthroughs. Or I'll give you another example. Like I think maybe 30, 40 years ago, if you were a young person graduating from college, maybe you thought about like getting some sort of a degree. Today, may, you maybe, you know, if you're forward thinking in crypto, you may not even want to go to college, right? You may actually want to start a DAO and, and just, you know, get something off the ground. And, you know, like instead of starting a business, what do you do today? Like maybe you actually join a DAO. Right. Instead of like starting a local cafe or graduating from college and you know joining an accounting firm and then maybe one day starting your own, maybe you just don't do that. Maybe you just go, you know, join some DAO and, and that's actually your job. And that's a weird thing, right? It breaks social convention. Like, who do you work for? Well, kind of nobody. Or how do you get paid? Right. It's kind of sporadically. What is your job? It's kind of six different jobs. So I think I think like social convention is actually the thing to look at is like, where does it feel like people are doing really weird stuff? And then like looking at why they're doing that weird stuff, because I think one good rule on the internet that I was talking about is basically if 50 million people on the internet do something, probably 3 billion people are going to do it. Like no matter how weird it looks, once something on the internet hits about 50 million people, it's just, there's like some human need that's being met there. And so, you know, take something like buying JPEGs. You're like, this makes no sense. Like, why would you pay a million dollars for a JPEG that somebody else can just copy paste? But actually, once you start probing into it, you're like, well, there's actually a lot of interesting new conventions here that people have created that are new social conventions. And so it actually starts to make sense once you probe at it. And so to me, that's that's where the really interesting breakthroughs are. There's like there's social convention of old that people are going to break or there's new social conventions being formed where you look at that and you're like, that's really strange. That's just different than what I would expect. It doesn't make any sense to me, but a lot of people are doing it. And so those are the places, especially as a venture investor, where I start to probe, where I start to say, wait a second, like, what is this really weird behavior that people are doing? And does it scale? Like, will 50 million people do this one day? And I'm, I'm fairly convinced that actually, when you fast forward 20 years, I think it's going to be very commonplace to have uh, some sort of handle on the internet that's not your real name. And that's actually how you get paid. And I think there's very, it's going to be very, very common for people to have most of their most treasured purchases actually be digital goods instead of physical goods. I think it's, that's almost certainly going to be the case in 20 years. And so some of these things that look really weird today, I think when you when you look at them from a 20-year lens, they're just going to be totally normal 20 years from now. So is this a bulk of what you call the social graph that's being built around NFTs? Is there anything else you would kind of add to that concept? Yeah, the graph around NFTs, I think, is a big opportunity. And I don't think anybody has quite cracked it yet. Like we've invested in a company called Hype that is um, is exploring this. But I think the idea is like today... You know, one of the big reasons that people buy NFTs is to be a part of a community. Like when you're buying a, an ape, a board ape, or if you're buying a DGen ape on, on Solana, or you're buying a crypto punk, you're, you're actually making a value statement, or you're saying there's a group of people and I belong to these people. And there's some set of values that you share with them. And it's interesting because that's actually, you know, that's the start of a conversation. But it's actually kind of hard to have a conversation beyond that. Like, yeah, you might be able to join the gated discord, where if you prove you have the NFT, you're in there. 
but there's so much more that you could be doing, right? Like what are the other items that these people own? Like what other communities are they a part of? And that might be interesting to you. And because, you know, identity is not one dimensional, it's, it's multidimensional. So how do you actually connect with these people in a more multifaceted way? You know, what is the, what is the lineage of, of any particular item? Like what, you know, who, who has held it before and why? And, you know, what is the meaning that's been sort of imbued into these objects over time as different people have owned them? And why did they choose to buy or sell them? Or who is the creator, right? And actually having a mean, meaningful conversation with the creator. Because I think when you think about a lot of NFTs and, and, and really art in general, like one of the big reasons that people buy art is because they want to support the person or persons who, who created the art. It's about patronage. And today, I don't think that's quite captured. You know, it's, it feels sort of transactional rather than, than a relationship. So I kind of look at the idea of buying NFTs and being a part of this community as just one tiny, tiny facet of what people really want when they're buying an NFT. Like the human need that's being expressed, in my opinion, is one of wanting community and belonging and friendship and relationships. And those are very multifaceted, complex things. We don't really have the tooling right now. We're kind of like bolting Twitter and Discord to try to to try to get some of that relationship, right? It's like, but it's, it was never really designed for that. And so I think you're going to get a whole new class of, of tooling around social, which is going to create this entirely new graph. Because like the people that you connect with because they own a punk or because they own a, a board ape or a pudgy penguin or whatever, that's actually a different group of people than the people that you connect with on LinkedIn or the people that you connect with on Facebook or the people that you follow on Twitter. It's actually a different group of people. And anytime you see that behavior where the, the graph is, itself is actually different for some reason, you're going to see a new application form around that new different type of graph. And so I think I, I'm waiting and I'm excited to see kind of the new side, the new sorts of applications that are going to get formed around this new graph. Do you feel like there's utility around even the most popular NFTs like CryptoPunks right now? Or is there not at this point in time? And they're merely just collectibles that, you know, you either speculate on or you're invested in because, as you say, you really want to support the organization or the artist that created the work. What's your take on utility in NFTs currently? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are, there, there's actually, I think, very real utility. And I think there are three distinct types of utility here. And they're all sort of, you know, commingled and, and they sort of um, mirror each other. And they actually, you, you can kind of mirror those back into the traditional world, like the physical world. So if you think about a painting, like, why might you buy a painting? Well, you might buy it because you actually like the painting. You just want to see it, right? So you want to buy the physical thing and hang it up on your wall. The second is you might want to support the artist, right? There's a degree of patronage. Uh, the third is social capital, right? It's like you can say you paid a million dollars for a painting or like you own a Picasso or whatever, right? There's like social capital that comes with having made that purchase. And then there's a community, right? People who are into art, you know, go to, to gallery openings and, and they support each other and there's events. And maybe if you donate to a museum, there's sort of... Um, you know, community around the museum. So there's sort of a community aspect to it. And it turns out, and if you have all four of those, right, there's an ownership element. It's like you like, you just like the thing and you want to, you want to own it. You want, you want, you know, there's enough convention around who actually owns it, despite the copy paste mechanic. Like you can, you can actually prove quote unquote that you own this and, and that might unlock certain utility for you. There's the idea of patronage. It's like, I just like this artist. So you're seeing, for example, photographers sell their photos to their fans directly and make more money than they have, you know, ever. Or musicians that are selling, you know, like Justin Blau, uh, selling NFTs of his music that's unreleased and, and his fans are buying it. He's, you know, he's actually able to you know make more than, than many mainstream artists uh, as sort of, you know, by selling NFTs. So I think the idea of patronage is very real here. You know, the, the social capital also very real, right? It's like if you own a CryptoPunk, maybe because you bought it really early, then you're sort of an OG crypto person or 
maybe you paid a million dollars for it, but that's still social capital because you get to say, like, I paid a million dollars for this JPEG, right? So there's there are different forms of social capital, but you can get social capital from NFTs. And then, of course, communities, like which thing you're choosing to buy, you're opting into a certain community. So it turns out, like, you know, there's this massive offline market that has all of the exact same characteristics as NFTs. And so I think NFTs have at least all of that. But then in addition, what you get with NFTs is programmability because they're they're digital. And so it opens up a whole new set of utility that isn't available offline. So things like fractional ownership, group buying, like people actually being able to pool assets together and go after you know certain digital items, uh, you know, lending or borrowing, like things like Taker Protocol, where you can actually take your NFT and deposit it and borrow against it. I think somebody's going to create something like mortgages, where like you want to buy an NFT, so somebody will loan you money right to go buy it and you can you can sort of like collateralize it so like the bank can go like technically the bank owns the house and then you're paying the bank back but you get to live there and and use the house and if you ever default on your payments the bank like seizes your house totally same thing could work for nfts right like some pool of capital like a dow can go buy some nfts and then you can like pay interest in to like buy the nft that you want over 10 years and if you ever miss your payments then like the dow just like seizes it right it's it's already got custody and it's actually pretty easy to, to do that so I think actually like the intersection of, of what NFTs are and the fact that they're now digital means you're, you're going to get a lot of really interesting experimentation that, that I think we're just starting to see. And I think that that combination, I think, is, is going to generate an entirely new kind of utility that, that I think we're just starting to play with. Another one of my sponsors is Amber Group. Amber Group is an integrated crypto finance platform behind the popular Amber app, a crypto finance app that allows you to easily earn, swap, trade and invest in crypto. You can earn up to 5% APY instantly by depositing assets to your wallet and receive daily interest payouts. This means earning interest 24-7 with no lockup. You can also customize fixed income investments between 1 and 360 days to enjoy up to 10% APR with flexible redemptions. Right now, new users can earn up to 16% APR on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USD stablecoins. Go and download Amber app at www.ambercrypto.com and earn interest on your own terms. On that point there, do you, do you think there will be some type of financial services purpose fit for like virtual real estate? Just because you mentioned mortgages, um, you know, the, the growth of, of land and, and buildings now being bought up, right? In anticipation of more things being built in that particular ecosystem. I mean, yeah, taking out a mortgage for a virtual property in the metaverse. Like, are we still far from, you know, from, from that at this point? It's, it's a really good question. It's something I've thought about, and I, I don't have a great answer. My current thinking is that I, I don't really see the case for digital land yet. And the reason is I don't know what the extension of utility is quite yet. I can imagine what one might be, but I don't think it's here yet. So, you know, if you think about land in the real world, like why is land valuable? Well, it's because you can do stuff with it. You can actually take your time and you can invest it into the land and make the land useful. You can grow food on it. You can put a house on it, which then you can rent out. Right. So there's like ways to take the land and improve it. And then that will generate revenue. And because it will generate revenue, somebody will actually pay for the land or somebody will rent the land from you to, to make it more useful. And I don't know what that is today in, in digital land. Like, I don't know, like under what circumstances would somebody pay you, the landowner, to rent the land from you? You know, the only reason they would do that is because they can make more money. Like they're going to pay you a hundred bucks a month and then they can, they can turn around and make $200 a month on it, right? There's some, some profit that they need to make. And I don't know what that is today. The most likely candidate right now, I think is just attention, right? You're like, you're, there's going to be some space that you're walking through. And because you visit it all the time, there's eyeballs there. 
And, and so people want those eyeballs. And so if there's some really important piece of land that everybody's walking by every day, then, you know, being able to put stuff there that people are going to see, you know, commercial or otherwise might make the land valuable. But I don't think we have that yet. You know, I don't think there's like a space that everybody's going to, 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 you know, make the land valuable. The closest we have, I think, are maybe like Twitter profiles or Discord profiles, which are these things that, you you know, a lot of people interact with and there's sort of a space there and you can sort of make the space better by by buying some NFT because you can personalize it. But, you know, I I don't know what that is yet. And I don't know, my my instinct is that the the skeuomorphic answer of we're just going to have virtual plots of land and like put on our VR headsets and walk around through them, I don't think is right. That's like the first pass. I mean, there's this other pattern in technology, right? Which is the first pass at something is just really skeuomorphic. It just looks like what we're used to. And so we like copy paste it into the new world. So for example, like the original iPhone apps, they were like leather and paper because that's what we're used to touching, right? So literally when you looked at like a book app in, in, in like the original iPhones, you know, like in 08, 09, it was li- literally like a leather bound book sitting on a bookshelf, a wooden bookshelf and you tapped it and like the book grew and like opened up and the pages looked like paper. And it's just cause that's what we're used to, right? That's like what touch interfaces meant to us. And then over time we figured out like those are not the right interfaces and that's like not the right way to use a phone. And so I think we're kind of in that era right now of digital land is like, we know that there's something interesting that's going to happen here. Like the notion of having a space and being able to like build on it and do interesting stuff with it. But we're just copy pasting right now. We're just sort of like, Oh, like in the real world, you can walk around and see land and build some buildings on it and, and people want that. But in the digital world, it's not like somebody's renting that building from you, right? It's not like somebody needs to live there. At the moment. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, at the moment. Yeah. And so like, I think some point over the next couple of years, somebody will, will crack it and actually will say, Oh, that's obvious. Like digital land equivalent is actually this other thing. It looks kind of like land and it has real utility and actually there's money changing hands there. And so I get it. But to date, I haven't really seen a great answer for like why somebody would pay you to rent land, like digital land for you. I just haven't seen a great answer to that question yet. Yeah, well, I guess while we're on the topic of the metaverse, I think there's no better person to ask, at least within crypto that I can think of right now, about how you view Facebook's mission to become a metaverse company. I bet when that came out, either you were actually surprised or not surprised, right, that Mark was headed in this direction. Yeah, I was, I was actually totally not surprised. And it's because he's, he's actually intimated it for a long time. I mean, the, the stuff that they launched recently with the VR headset with like a, you're sitting in a conference room and there's other people kind of around you. All that stuff actually has been um, in development for a long time, actually. The, the main product manager on that, a guy named uh, Mike LeBeau, is an old friend of mine. He and I worked together very closely at Facebook for years on the same team. And so he's been working on that stuff since maybe like 2015, you know, 2016, like five years. And so like, it's been in the background for a long time, this idea that like social is going to move to VR and they're going to be these VR spaces. We just didn't call it the metaverse. Like we didn't have that language yet. And so it's been, it's been sort of floating around in the background with Facebook and Mark for a long, long time. And, you know, I think if there's any company that can pull it off right now, it's probably Facebook. And the reason is it's still founder led. And I think when you have founder led companies, founders tend to have moral authority so they can just make companies do stuff and just say, yeah, that used to be how we did things. We just don't do that anymore. And if somebody's like, well, why? And the answer is because I said so. Right. And like, that's what a founder can do that a CEO has a really, really tough time with because they don't have quite the same moral authority as a founder. And so I think if any company is going to pull it off, I think Facebook can pull it off because Mark is still there. 
and you know, I think that's it's a it's I think an underappreciated thing about founder-led companies is like to me, it's it's not a surprise that the world's best companies end up being founder-led. I'm just, and I think it's just like this moral authority gives you an edge. But you know, will they win? You know, can they win? Um, I think is an interesting question, and and I think there's almost like two worldviews right now. I think there's the Facebook worldview, and others have this too. So it's not only Facebook, but I think you know they are one of the people that have this, which is there's sort of this step function change that, that they're trying to push, which is virtual reality headsets and, a, and an entirely new world. And so it's a, it's a pretty meaningful step function change. Like it's a, an entirely different computational platform. And then I think there's a much more iterative version, which is actually what crypto is doing, which is starting with things like NFTs and you take something like MeBits and you bought one, but it also has like a 3D version of it. You have browser plugins, things like whether it's MetaMask or things like CryptoVoxels where you can sort of experience the world through the browser. And so there's a much more iterative version of getting to the metaverse that's actually happening via Web3 and, and crypto. And I don't know which of those two will work ultimately, but at some point I think they converge. You know, I think sometime over the next 10 years, like a lot of what's happening in crypto gets reflected into VR and a lot of what VR is doing sort of, you know, has, has to have implications in crypto. As simple as like, how do you take a 2D NFT and, and be able to use it in VR and 3D? And so, you know, I think these worlds will converge, but it's, it's, you know, it's not clear which of the two paths will be the dominant path and then exert influence over the other. Like, will it be the case that like the crypto community and the way that you build stuff and open blockchains and NFTs and sort of that open internet will will be how the stuff happens? And then it just sort of, it doesn't matter which VR platform you're talking about. They all sort of have to snap to the same standards in a sense than like the crypto Web3 ecosystem one. Or does it work the other way, which is whoever owns the VR headsets that everybody's using the developers have to build into that ecosystem. So it ends up being a much more closed ecosystem likely with the standards being defined by whoever owns that computational platform, whether it's Google or Facebook or Apple or who knows. And I don't think we know the answer to that yet, but I'm, I'm personally hoping that it's actually the more open public blockchain web three version. Yeah. I was just about to say, you know, what does it even mean for Facebook to win at building a metaverse, right? There, there's no end goal here where one company needs to actually build it for everyone, right? In, in fact, it's, it's a multi-lane world, right? In, in terms of how people would perceive the, the most ideal metaverse to look like is not one that is actually controlled by uh, or born out of just one company. You know, the, the sense of it's, it's more like an infinite game than an actually finite game where we just get to one version and, you know, the buck stops there. So, yeah, I think people would have questions, right? Just, just because what you said was really thought-provoking. What does it even mean for a Facebook or a Facebook equivalent to be the one to create this first iteration of the metaverse that we probably can't even picture right now because uh, we we are so far away from that? I know it's, it's a good it's a good question, and I I think probably the only person who really knows the answer to that question ultimately is is um, Mark. You know, and, and it's probably an evolving vision, but I think by the nature of the modern corporation, like a, you know, a, a publicly traded C-Corp, I think that creates some constraints. And I think some of those constraints, for example, are that there has to be a way for that platform to make money. And it's likely something like an app store. And so that creates this gatekeeper, which is the developers need to go through the gatekeeper to get distribution and get access to customers. And so ultimately, I think it takes the form that the, the platform has to own that. And likely what that means is that the platform controls the operating system and maybe even controls the hardware. Maybe not. Maybe you get something more like PCs where you don't, you know, you have sort of a duopoly. You have like a Wintel situation. There's like somebody who really makes the headsets and somebody else makes the software. But 
I suspect in this case, it very well may be that you get vertical integration, like you need to make the hardware and you need to make the software. And then that ecosystem is essentially a closed ecosystem. And, and it's because it has to be, because the CapEx required to, to make all of this work, the amount of capital you have to put in is so enormous that as a publicly traded company, you have to be able to extract back out. And so that really kills off the notion of openness and interoperability because it's unlikely that those things accrete value back in, in the same way that a closed platform would. And, and that's really the history of the internet. I mean, if we look at things that started open and as open platforms, slowly what happens is, I mean, VCs have a term for this, right? Platform risk. Because what happens is the applications that are really killer applications on top of the platform tend to get consumed by the platform. And there are some exceptions that you know, kind of sneak through. Facebook on top of mobile, for example, is a great example. But that happened in part because there was a duopoly between Apple and Google. But, you know, had there been uh, no such duopoly, you know, it's an interesting thought. If it was only Google, for example, could they have built something like WhatsApp and competed with Facebook or, or something like Instagram and competed with Facebook? And so that's always the risk is actually when you have these these centralized C-corps that are publicly traded companies, I think you you likely end up with something that's very closed because they just have to. Like by their the nature of their existence, they have to extract value in a certain way. And historically, that's meant you, meant you control the platform, you control distribution on the platform, and you're not open because that's you can't make as much money if you are. Yeah, then I guess connecting this to the world of gaming, right? We've seen this new project called Loot come up and, you know, you've you've written, I, I, I think, like a, a great thread about this. But you say that Loot is a third major NFT innovation, right? And kind of touching on that last point you made about, you know, potentially it is the the platform or the platform historically has been the one to extract value up until this point loot comes in and creates a truly community owned gaming platform talk to us more about loot and the promise sort of or the primitives that loot you know can offer to crypto yeah so i think it's loot is a fascinating experiment so it's created by um dom dom was one of the creators of vine and for people that don't know vine vine was tiktok before tiktok and so he's he's a true product visionary, and so he's been playing with the crypto and building a game. You know, he's, it's, he's experimenting with Blitmap and uh, Superdrive, and so he's he's um he's a true I think product visionary. And so he had this interesting idea, probably I don't know, it's only three or four weeks ago. It's not long ago at all. And the idea was, well, instead of creating a game and and me being the person that creates a game and then getting people to use it and building a community around that, instead, what if you made all the primitives of the game, like you made the game pieces, and then you gave them away to the community and they created the game. And that's kind of a mind-bending thought. It actually takes, it took me a little bit to get my head around it. It took me, it's, it's one of these things where having been in crypto for long enough or ha- having been in tech long enough, you see something and you say, I remember literally like, I think it came out on a Friday and I, on a Saturday I was texting, I had this group text thread with um, a bunch of my college buddies and I was texting them and I said, this is either going to be the stupidest place I've ever put money, or this is going to be like the, the best investment I ever make. Because I, I didn't know if it was brilliant or it was stupid, but it had that sort of sense of it. It's kind of like when you first heard about Airbnb or Uber, you're like, this is either you know, really, really stupid, or this is amazing. And after a couple of days, I realized it was amazing. And, and it, the reason is because it's sort of like, the analogy I use is it's sort of like somebody created the 52 card playing deck, right? Aces and Kings and Queens and two through nine and four different suits and, and all of that. Uh, two through 10. And so, you know, somebody created that at some point, right? I don't know when, like a thousand years ago, somebody created that. And then everything that got built on top of that, right? Go fish, solitaire, blackjack, poker, like the community just owns it. Like, those are just 
open source, right? Anybody can play those games. And so imagine if there was like the original playing card deck, or there's like somebody who created the original playing card deck. That's kind of what Dom did, right? He created this sort of 8,000 NFTs and the NFTs have eight slots on them. And each of the slots is sort of a Dungeons and Dragons or Magic the Gathering kind of, you know, fantasy role-playing kind of theme to it. There's like a helmet and a chest plate and a belt and shoes and pants and a weapon and a magic item. And so there's sort of these like categories and, and then the items are all randomly generated. So there's, you know, like... 300 katanas and there's like 350 divine robes and, and there's some items where there's only one of them but they're all randomly generated and, and that's essentially your playing card deck so what dom did was essentially created like a playing card deck and now what's happened is the community is just creating everything else and so you're seeing things like people are, are sort of creating characters because it was just text and so people are actually starting to draw what these cards look like like what does it actually mean to have dragon skin boots or divine robe like what does that look like or people are, are creating games and stories around this there's actually a loot hackathon this week. There's a there's a, a project that just launched this morning uh, called Loot Market, where you can take your loot NFT and take it in, and it sort of decomposes the eight items that you have in your in your um, NFT. And there's art, and it actually like produces the art for each of those items for you, and has it sort of in a in a marketplace now. So you could essentially like outfit your character with that, or maybe you could buy and sell these items. And so what's fascinating to me about it is like it's the anti game, right? Like Dom didn't actually create a game. Dom created the primitives so that the community can create multiple games. And I actually think it's going to be more than one game. I think there's not going to be like one canon or one lore. It's going to be more like blackjack and poker and go fish. Like people are just going to go create multiple games on top of this, which I think is amazing. And so the value all comes from what the community does with it. And I think that's the first time I've ever seen something like that, where he's essentially giving away most of the value, right? He didn't go and create 10 games there will be 10 games that get created on top of this. And so actually most of the value is given away to the community. Like whoever creates these games and whoever creates the artwork and whoever creates the marketplace to buy and sell this stuff, like actually most of the value gets given away, which is actually the true, the true signal of a platform, in my opinion, is actually, it's actually an old Bill Gates quote. Is like, you know, that's how you know it's a platform is that actually most of the value is not captured by the platform. Most of the value is given away to people who built on top of the platform. And so in my mind, it was actually one of the first instances instances of somebody using NFTs to create a gaming platform, which I think is just a fascinating experiment. So, you know, it's sort of, it's still, it's only about a month old, but I've never seen, I've rarely seen, not never, I've rarely seen that kind of entrepreneurial energy and that kind of developer energy and sort of the excitement that it created because everybody got it. They're like, oh, he's giving it away. He's, he's actually like letting us create the game. And like, there's kind of like, a, I think what's happening in part is there's sort of an Ikea effect, if you know that term, which is like, it's a funny, like psychological thing. Like what happens is when people buy Ikea furniture and then you have to like go home and assemble it because you had to do work to assemble the thing, it's actually more valuable to you. And so when people relist Ikea furniture, they list it like absurdly high because they spent all this time like making it. So they think it's more valuable than that. Time and sweat into it. That's built in. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so people like value it more. And so I call that the Ikea effect. And so I think a similar thing is happening here, which like it actually, because everybody's going to have to create the games and has to go and do a bunch of work, the community owns it. And so actually the community will love it because they're imbuing it with value and they're doing work. And the work means that they're going to value it more. And so I think you're going to get a sense of community ownership and love and ownership that you just don't get when somebody else creates the game and gives it to you. And if you think about how much people love games, how much people love the storylines of games, like the, you know, the billions of dollars that people spend playing games, and then imagine... The IKEA effect on top of that is a multiplier where people are going to love this thing even more because they're, they have a hand in actually creating it. 
I think that's that's potentially tremendously valuable. And it reminds me actually a lot of Ethereum. So that's what I said in that tweet storm is just, it reminds me a lot of sort of the entrepreneurial developer community energy that happened around Ethereum, where all of a sudden people said, oh, there are a bunch of primitives here and most of the value is getting given away. Like I can do a lot of stuff with this and then people just started tinkering with it and playing with it. But there is this sort of like community ethos that, that got bootstrapped really quickly, in part because of who Vitalik is. Like his, his energy is one of like wanting the community to own it and like give it away. And I think Dom has like a really similar energy. Like he's not trying to extract all the value. He's actually trying to create real value. And, and that kind of a person, I think, sort of galvanizes a community. So I'm really excited to see what happens with Loot. But I, I think it's sort of this, this meta game platform. Like he's given away all the, the game pieces and now people are going to create many, many games on top of this platform. And it's fascinating because it's it's so simple, right? It's just a bunch of text. It's just a bunch of words. But I think that's what's so brilliant about it. It's so simple that actually you can run with it in all sorts of different ways. Have these loot pieces all been bought up though, such that the floor price is, you know, now an average of like in the tens of ETH, if not yeah. more? Because <laughs> access to these is another another question, right? People are like, great, you know, I buy into this concept, but uh, I can't get my hands on one of these, you know, like for the average gamer. So uh, what's the situation there? Yeah, I think the floor price right now is like six, six ETH maybe. So it's around $18,000, $20,000 USD, something like that. So yeah, each loot bag right now is is probably out of the reach of most gamers. But I think it's a solvable problem because I think, for example, what you could have is game developers may still say, well, I want the greatest number of people playing the game. So maybe what you do is you allow people to continue to play the game with some sort of derivative loot bags. So it's not the original loot. It's sort of a copy of, of those loot bags. So it's not as valuable as the original, but it still lets you play the game in that way. And so maybe... Game player, game game developers might issue their own version of loot bags, and you can go get those, and they're very cheap. It's just to play in their game, or maybe you know, like people have played around with things like, well, what if you took each of the eight thousand and you made an extra, you know, hundred of them? So there's like a hundred copies of each one, um, and you can go buy them for really, really cheap. And then maybe what will happen is game developers will support loot, but they'll also support the sort of mini loot or M loot. And so you know, I think people will sort of play with it. Or, or another option may be that like. If somebody wanted to, what they could do is they could take their their original loot NFT, put it into a smart contract, and print like a hundred versions of that. And and it's a different thing; it's a different NFT. And they could like give those away or, or sell those for really cheap. So maybe there's some really popular game. You you need a certain set of cards to play the game, and so maybe you know those people could get together and essentially print a bunch of of those and sort of have a derivative on their loot bags that they can make a little bit of money off of. But other people will pay a small amount of money to play the game. So I think a lot of these mechanics are going to get figured out, and they're kind of TBD. Or maybe people will like let each other borrow their their loot bags. Like maybe I, I have you know uh, a couple of loot bags and I let you borrow them for you know ten dollars a day or something. So I still own them and at the end of the day they come back to me, right? So I think there's there's a lot of mechanics here to, to figure out, and and I think it'll probably take a while to figure all these things out. And I think you hit on one of the big ones. It's just like well, how do how do people use all of these? But I do think you're going to get some sort of copy mechanic. Maybe a, an, another analogy here is kind of like the Gutenberg Bibles. Like you know there are the original. I think there's like ten or so that um, Gutenberg printed. And those things are really, really, really valuable is if you have one of the original Gutenberg Bibles. But of course, like many, many, many Bibles have been printed since then, right? So maybe maybe sort of these 8,000 original loot items are super valuable and they're still functional and they can be used in games. But for gameplay reasons, maybe there's some other like M loot or something that, that everybody can go buy and access and play the games with. And, and that ecosystem sort of like supports each other. And so actually by having a lot of games that support M loot, it actually makes the loot bags more valuable. So actually maybe the loot people are really excited by the idea of M-Loot existing because that means that 
many, many people can play these games that are based on loot. Yeah, or even taking a page out of the Axie uh, playbook and creating scholarship programs around the games that eventually get built on top of loot. Yeah, I mean, that very, very community-centric, right? And it's one of the primary ways that uh, a lot of the the folks who, you know, are getting into the Axie game now with the floor price, again, being probably inaccessible to a lot of the people who are getting in saying, hey, look, if I'm worth it, choose me as one of the scholars. And then, you know, I can give you a kickback of the, the profits that I earn, right? Battling my Axie, so to say. So yeah, love, love the sort of thought experiment that we can be doing uh, with Loot and, you know, potentially other projects as well. But I think that's what crypto really enables us to do is let us go on tangents, you know, fun tangents to just think about the could be. And instead of working within the confines of what is now, and and that is, I think, one of the most freeing feelings I've been able to experience in the last, you know, couple of years since I've, you know, really gone down deep into the crypto, crypto rabbit hole, as I call it, is just never feeling you know, judged or punished for thinking a way that is contrarian or that isn't the mainstream way to go, right? And my focus is not on the gaming side, it's more been on financial services. But, you know, that's even an, an older industry to tackle that requires innovation and not just saying, I'll stay in my lane and I'll just, you know, deal within the infrastructure that currently exists, right? Totally. Yeah, and I think I, I, I agree. I think it's one of the most freeing things, both about being an entrepreneur and being an investor in this space, because yeah, there are no, like, there's no answers. I mean, like, for example, this idea of a scholarship is brilliant. Like whoever came up with that, that's awesome. Right. And somebody invented it. it. It really does feel like you're on the frontier and there's that kind of that old Steve Jobs saying, which is, um, you know, like everything was invented by people no smarter than you. And that I think it's just so true in crypto right now. It's just like, literally you can come in and in six to 12 months, get really up to speed and be on the frontier. And then you can just invent things. And then you'll go talk to people and be like, hey, has anybody thought about doing this? And almost always the answer is no, <laughs> which is like pretty amazing, right? And so you're like, well, okay, I guess we should just try that then. And that's also really fun as an investor because then you see all these ideas and you're like, wow, that's a really interesting idea. I totally would never have thought of that. And I have no idea if it's going to work, which unlike the internet, right? Like the internet we've seen so much now over the last 15 years, that there are a lot of, a lot of patterns, right? You know, you look at like a SaaS business and you're like, okay, I know what a SaaS business looks like and what metrics to look at. I can kind of, you can kind of figure out pretty quickly whether or not a SaaS business is, is working. And in a lot of crypto businesses, you're just like, you have no idea. There's so many things that people have passed on that ended up working. And there's so many things that people have invested a lot of money into that didn't work at all. And so it's just, you know, the frontier is just still being figured out, which is like, I totally agree. It's so freeing. Yeah. Avachal, this has been um, just such a great conversation. I mean, I've, I've learned so much just by you unpacking a lot of the big thoughts that you have about crypto and of course about larger things like the internet, you know, web two, web three bridges and all that. But I would love to end on a fun note. And this is something that if uh, listeners have have tuned into your previous interviews will know is that, you know, you often talk about a house party or uh, hosting a dinner, right, with uh, tons of people. And some of those folks would be a mix of college kids and college professors, drug dealers, adult film stars, and bankers. I mean, what a mix right there. But my, my question, all right, if you were to invite these people, right, what is it about the mindset of these people that, you know, you are attracted to, and that kind of fits the the whole ethos of crypto, right? If you were to teach these people about 
crypto. Why this group in particular? Yeah, I, I appreciate that you did so much research. Yeah, I, I've, I've often used this example of crypto and the internet were sort of, the, you know, if you look at them through an analogy, it's the people that are here is a really strange collection of people, right? It's, it is the adult film stars and the drug dealers and college kids and college professors and Wall Street people and entrepreneurs, but also like the SEC and the NSA and the CIA and, you know, people in developing economies and emerging markets that all over the world. It's, it's a really strange collection of people to all be in the same place. And in my opinion, the last time that really happened was the Internet. And so the reason I think that that is an interesting collection of people is because they actually come from such different walks of life. Right. These are not people actually that have very much in common. And, and so that to me is the interesting bit, which is like when you take people from such different perspectives and such different value systems and such different walks of life and they all see some value, that's a really interesting sign. And I think too often when people see some bad actors in a space, they say, oh, let me extrapolate from that. Everybody must be bad or the only use cases must be bad. Or actually, I don't want to be associated with those people that are that are socially deplorable. Back to this idea of actually like, you know, social stigma, I think, holds back people from seeing true utility. And so you look at these this sort of motley crew of people. And if that diverse a collection of people are all in one place, I think you have to ask the question why. And it's because there's real utility there. And, and that's to me is like the most clear signal. It's, it's not, you know, it's not anything top down. It's not anything super fancy. It's, you know, you don't need a ton of data. It's just when you have that diverse a collection of people all hanging out in one place, then there's something real going on there. And then the question really, I think, to ask for most people is not, you know, like, well, how do we how do we stop the, the, the drug dealers or how do we stop, you know, this sort of activity that, that I might disagree with, which I think is an important conversation to have. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have that. But really, the question to ask is like, well, why the hell are all these people here? Like, What are they really seeing? Like, What is the utility? Because if you can get at that, then you can figure out how to nurture that. And I think that's kind of where we are right now is I think where a lot of the conversations we're having, fundamentally, I think a lot of people do not see the utility, which is I think on the crypto community. Like, I think we have to make the case for the utility first. And I think if we can make that case, then I think we'll figure out how to nurture that utility and, and make it something meaningful. Taking cues for the next house party that I host, I will expand from the crypto crowd that's usually there. <laughs> that would be a fun house party if you have that invite me. That's such a that's a an interesting collection of people. Well, we're gonna have to get you over to Hong Kong. I'm that's what I've been telling all of all of my guests. You know, Hong Kong is just like we're we're dying for people to come visit us once things are opened up, hopefully next year, crossing my fingers there. But I would absolutely love to host you and just a bunch of other crypto folks, you know, who do end up coming to the, I don't know, token 2049 or something of 20, uh, 2022. That would be really incredibly fun. So Avishal, thank you so much for staying up so late where you are over, I believe, in the Bay Area and for hopping on Crypto Unstacked. I think this is going to be really fun for our listeners to tune into. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.